Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. You're listening to the Red Sea Podcast, part of the Over the Monster Network. Red Sox fans have longed to hear it. The Boston Red Sox are world champions. Hosted by Jake Devereaux. It's gone. It's in the bullpen. This game is tied. This game is tied. David Ortiz. David Ortiz. David Ortiz. And featuring Keaton DeRocher. It's a grand slam. I'm telling you. Welcome back to the Red Sea Podcast. This is your host, Jake Devereaux, and today I am joined for episode 251 by my uh, lovely co-host, Keaton DeRocher of Over the Monster. Uh, Keaton, have I ever described you with the adjective of lovely before? I'm not sure, but it seems like a word that you would have used before. Yeah, it does. Uh, So anyhow, um, we've got a wonderful podcast for you. I'm big on the adjectives today. I don't know why. Um, (laughs) We we certainly don't have a spectacular baseball team here in Boston. But, um, you know, on today's show, we're going to be talking about what's going on with the Red Sox. Obviously, if you've been paying any attention, uh, none of it's good. uh, But we're going to talk about where they sit right now and how that relates to uh, the trade deadline that's coming up. And who we should blame for this really uh, calamitous stretch of this season. Uh, We're going to get to some listener questions. We're going to talk some big poppy. And uh, then we're going to get you out of here. So let's go ahead and get started, Keaton. Uh, The Red Sox have lost 15 of their 20 games in the month of July. Um, Last time, well, I guess not last time, but a couple episodes ago, we were talking about you know, how pivotal a month July was, and we were sort of trying to forecast the month. And I think your prediction was uh, 17 and 10, and mine was 13 and 14. And uh, we were way off. Like, even my sub-500 prediction was way off. Uh, This month is just horrendous. I mean, the fact that they are still 
winless against the AL East after being swept by the Blue Jays at home coming out of the All-Star break. Um, it's just really the worst case scenario here. They're just a half game up on the Orioles as we're recording this in the midst of a rain delay. Um, and uh, they're, they're about to fall into last place in the division. And if you look at it, I mean, the Orioles are trending in one direction. The Red Sox are trending in the other. Um, all the other teams in the AL East are very good and playing some good baseball. Uh, things are not good. Nope, they're not. Uh, Jake, I changed my mind. I'm no longer team buy. Your team sell now. I am. Yeah. Uh, what convinced you? Was it the uh, 28 run shellacking? That was part of it. Yeah. That was certainly part of it. Um, is uh, everything? The losses piling up. Uh, that just awful start right out of the gate uh, for the second half of the season. Um, the once stellar league leading defense that has just collapsed into a comedy of errors, uh, literally. Everything is just a disaster right now. This is not a team that looks like they want to win games. So um, I don't want to reward that. <laughs> yeah, I I mean, I agree with you. Um, and I have to go on a little bit of a mini rant here Do about it. why I think this is happening. Um, you know, I, one of the things I've been preaching on this podcast for a long time, and we've been doing this 250 plus episodes um, is the, the human side of baseball. And I think, you know, when you talk about getting a new job or going to work somewhere, like you're always talking about, like, what's the office culture like? And, you know, what's the work-life balance like? And how's your boss treat you? And all that stuff. So it's crazy to me when we think that athletes can just go out there and tune everything out and just like have this, you know, blissful workplace when no one else can do that when things are you know, going on around them. And that has been this contract situation with Xander Bogarts and Rafael Devers all season long. I think it's poisoned the clubhouse. It's colored everything. I also think that, you know, the uh, inadequate roster building here from Heim Bloom has really been uh, difficult for guys to manage. And then the injuries piling up, I think, was just the, the straw that broke the camel's back here. And, um, it's just really disappointing to see. And I know that, you know, some of the more recent injuries that have happened, Rafael Devers going on the IL with the hamstring tightness, uh, J.D. Martinez not playing since the All-Star break with back spasms, uh, and, and all the pitching that's on the IL, that's still a huge deal. But, you know, I, I really do think that there's only so much Cora can do. Um, and it's, it's now going on, you know, we're, we're essentially going to be at our second trading deadline of Cora and the team feeling like Bloom has sort of failed this team in terms of adding to this roster. Uh, and I, I know that the guys were, were disappointed last year when they picked up Schwarber and he was sort of injured. So they couldn't get that immediate impact from him until, you know, three weeks later. And they had that swoon right after the all-star break last year and, and thankfully, his energy did pick up uh, and propel the team. But, you know, as you mentioned right at the beginning, there's going to be no such opportunity for that to happen because 
the team has played so bad, they're almost certainly going to be sellers at this point. So I don't know. The whole thing's just disappointing to me. Yeah, it is. It definitely is. And it's it's not great when <laughs> your, your players are out there basically begging the front office for help. Uh, you know, seven days ago, Bogarts asked about, you know, the looming trade deadline and his response was to be nice to get some help for sure. <laughs> yeah. It's like, that's, that's not really, I mean, Bogarts in particular is not, not one that has typically been vocal about uh, the shape of the Red Sox. And that's not typically something that really any Red Sox players have been like approaching a deadline have been like really vocal about whether they've wanted, uh, basically voicing an opinion one way or another of which direction they wanted the, the team to go. Uh, because generally, they have a direction. And it's clear. Um, right now, they don't. And the players are really trying to push the team to be like, hey, we have a direction we'd like to go. It'd be nice to have the support of the front office to go in that direction, but we're, we're not getting it. And it's just really frustrating for them. And it's pretty clear. You can see it on the field. <laughs> it's frustrating. Yeah. It's frustrating to watch. Yeah, and it's not just one guy that's mentioned it either. It's not just Xander. It's been J.D. Martinez referencing the last dance here, the last go-round with this crew, you know, knowing that his contract is up at the end of the year and that he's not likely to be back with the team. Alex Cora has mentioned it uh, a number of times as well. So, you know, it's 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 there. It's there in these guys' faces every day, and you're absolutely right. Like, we've seen it on the field. Um, so let's get to some takeaways from this stretch here. Uh, I want to talk about Jaron Duran for a second here. So Jaron Duran um, had the worst play uh, defensively uh, that I probably that I can remember seeing for I don't know. It's it's been a long time since I've seen anything remotely like that. So <laughs> you know, it's one thing to lose a ball. We've all played in the outfield and we've all lost a ball before and. You know, that sucks, but when you lose a ball, you hustle to go get the ball. And I thought that the fact that he just, like, gave up on the play and sort of, like, almost pouted a little bit that, you know, he had misplayed the ball that much. I think he was embarrassed, honestly, but it was just, um, I, I was shocked that he was not immediately pulled from the game. I was shocked that he played the next day. I was kind of surprised he wasn't even sent down. I guess that talks about the 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 state of the roster here. But, uh, man, that was really bad. And I know that Cora said that he wanted the players in the clubhouse to handle it. And obviously we're not going to know how that occurred. But, woof. I mean, we know his defense is bad, but that was just horrendous. Yeah, it really did make it a lot worse. The, the lack of effort to make up for your mistake, like it goes a long way to acknowledge to everyone that you're like, yep, I biffed it, but I'm doing my best to make up for it. And I'm giving you my all to accept that I made it and I'm trying to make it right. But then to just sit there and be like, yeah, I'm just going to make this worse. Not great. Not great. No. Particularly here in, in Boston, the like trying to, to correct your mistakes goes a long way with the fans. <laughs> just stewing in it and making it worse uh, goes a long way in the other direction and just kind of takes a bad situation and makes it worse. So that even if Verdugo was still going to get to it quicker, like 
if like he turned around and saw that like Verdugo was going to get there before him, it doesn't matter. Just start moving towards it in that direction, and it it's we're not as hard on him as we are right now. And like as you pointed out, like calling for him to be demoted immediately after that. It's that's the biggest part of that play is that everybody is reacting to is the fact that he didn't try and go get the ball after it went over his head. And we all know how fast he is. It was kind of like a, a bullshit explanation, honestly, when, when yeah. he gave it like, oh, I didn't want to collide with Verdugo. Dude, you could have double the ground to make up of Verdugo and still get there at the exact same time. Like, we've seen you both run. There's a reason why he's in left field. There's a reason why you're one of the fastest guys in the entire game. That was just a garbage excuse. Yeah. I wasn't buying it. And you couple that with the fact that in July, uh, these are his numbers at the plate. 5.6% walk rate, 34.7% strikeout rate, and a slash line of 191, 236 OBP, and a 338 slugging. That's good for a 55 WRC+. plus. Um, that's miserable. So you couple the lack of effort, the horrible defense, which we already knew existed, and the fact that he's turned into a complete zero at the plate over the last month, this is a this is a bad recipe. I don't think that Jaron Duran is ready for the big leagues right now. But I don't think they have any other solutions. I don't think they do either. But I uh, I won't go that far. I will say, because I, I happened to write about this at uh, good old overthemonster.com, this was uh, the uh, one big question that I wrote about Duran back in February. Uh, every single level throughout the minors... Duran, well, I mean, he cruised through single A, every level of single A. Got to double A, had a, had a slow start, but then figured it out and was on fire. Had a bit of a transition to triple A, figured it out, was on fire. Given the at-bats, he's figured out every single level how to hit. The, the problem with Boston is they often don't give young players enough time to do that. At the major league level, uh, which is not necessarily a bad thing because more often than not, they're competing and there's a reason for them not having, not giving uh, young guys a chance to adjust because um, a lot of times they just can't afford it, afford to do it, um, which isn't necessarily a bad thing. But um, in terms of like prospect development, in case, unless you're like a special guy like Bogarts or Devers where you just like, you're really good right away. Uh, they don't have a lot of time to wait uh, for you to adjust. But that's kind of been Duran's MO at every single level is he needs those consistent at-bats and time to adjust. He started off really well. He was doing well against major league pitching. Then they adjusted. Now it's his turn His turn to adjust back. And I think given the at-bats, he can do that. However, he needs to be playing like <laughs> some kind of sustainable defense in order to be allowed to be given the at-bats and then also, um, you know, not enough of a black hole at the, at the plate uh, while he's getting those, um, as you pointed out, God awful defense coupled with, you know, 55 WRC plus and no effort. Um, he's playing with fire on whether they're going to continue to give him those at-bats. If he wants to get those at-bats, and see the pitches that he needs to in order to adjust back and be the offensive player that I think that he can be. Uh, 
he's going to need to earn it. And that's, that is not a way to do it. Yeah, I was shocked that the next day it wasn't uh, Jackie in center and uh, Ref Snyder in right field. I thought he should have been benched uh, for that. If anything, it just sends a little bit of a message for him to to get his head right and his effort right. Uh, I think Francona would have made that move. I think Alex Cora uh, manages for a different generation of players, which is definitely maybe not used to that uh, type of discipline. But nonetheless, I, I thought that that message should have been sent. I think that was a little bit of a miss by Cora. Um, you know, two guys that I want to mention that the Red Sox, that kind of remind me of this situation are Michael Chavis uh, and, and Bobby Dahlbeck. And, you know, both of those guys were guys very much similar to Duran in that they had some really loud carrying tools, but also some serious questions with their approach uh, when it comes to, to hitting. The hit tool is the biggest question with all three of those guys. And um, we've talked on this podcast quite a bit about how much rope the Red Sox did actually give Michael Chavis. And we've seen now a couple of years of of auditioning of Bobby Dahlbeck at that first base position. But the difference is, you know, when those guys were on the field for the bulk of that time, Michael Chavis and, and Bobby Dahlbeck, they were like one of maybe the only or one of two weak links on the team at that time. And right now you're carrying Dahlbeck, Cordero, uh, you're you're carrying Duran. Um, who else is a weak link on this team? There's like a million weak link. JBJ. I mean, there's yeah. so many offensive zeros right now that you just. I don't think the team, unless they're clearly tanking, can afford to have run that many zeros out there. So I don't think it's like the organization doesn't give these guys time, but you can't give four zeros all that time. Well, the other piece with Chavis and Dahlbach was they were the only options at their positions for a very long time as well. They have a, right now, We, I mean, you mentioned Duran right now, but there are other outfield options like Kike Hernandez is hurt and unavailable. They have other outfield options that just immediately are not available to them, Yeah, uh, but otherwise would be that would boot him out of that. With Chavis and Dahlbach, they had zero other options to turn to. Yeah. So there was also that piece. Yeah, and, and definitely more palatable when you're only dealing with a couple of those guys who are actively working on development at the big league level. Um, but I do want to turn to that first base situation because that was another takeaway for me. Um, Dahlbeck, you know, had a home run in, in one of the games in the Toronto series. Uh, off Alec Manoa, um, and Alec Manoa was like un weirdly like aggressive uh, towards him after the strikeout. I didn't really know what that was about. Like I don't know why you chirp uh, Bobby Dahlbeck of all people, but sure, okay. Um, but that's not the point. Bobby Dahlbeck and Franchi Cordero, I don't believe, are major league caliber players. We talked about Duran's struggles on defense and at the plate. Uh, would you believe it that Franchi? In July, is the worst Red Sox hitter. I'm gonna I'm gonna let you guess his July WRC plus. If Duran's is a 55, and remember a hundred is league average for all the listeners out there, what would you guess Franchi's July is? 
Uh, 18. Lower. Yikes. Five. Nine. Oof. Here's his slash line. 140 batting average, 183 OBP, 228 slugging with a 48.4% strikeout rate. That's Franchi. I mean, Bobby Dahlbeck looks like Babe Ruth compared to him with his 93 WRC+. Both of those guys play god-awful defense at first base. You're getting nothing out of that position. Absolutely nothing. Fangraphs just did a series about, like, uh, biggest needs at first base. Number one team that was most negative at that position far and away was the Boston Red Sox. It's plain as day to see. I don't, I mean, even if you're not contending, what do you do here, Keaton? I don't know if you can run this out for the rest of the year. Honestly. Um, I mean, well, I mean, what what other option is there? I don't know. I mean, maybe maybe acquire somebody for next year. Maybe acquire a cheap defense defense first guy. I don't think these guys have value with this club right now. I mean, what role do you see with either of these players for the future? I don't want to play Cordero in right field. He can't hit. He's not a good fielder. I don't want to play Dahlbeck at first base or third base. He's not a good hitter. He's not a good fielder. I don't know what to do with these guys. I mean, I agree with you, but I... There's just there's no other option to turn to. There's no other depth, even when all the other folks are healthy. There's no other option. It's crazy. So Isn't it's, it crazy? Yeah, but and, and that's and that's the thing is, are you gonna make a trade for a first baseman if you're not competing? That doesn't make sense. Well, maybe it does though. So. Well, I, I guess if you're looking towards the future to make an investment, I guess you wouldn't make a trade for, like, uh, Josh Bell if you're not competing. Yeah, I mean, that's the thing. Like, if, if you wanted to trade for somebody like Josh Bell, you would be wanting to re-sign somebody like Josh Bell for next year to maybe, like, fill the DH spot and get some time at first base and maybe have Casas in and Bell, like, split first base and DH together because JD's going to be up. There are things that you can do here. But this all goes back to the point of, like, why didn't Bloom do anything about this situation? You know, it's just, it's it's unacceptable. Um, and and when we look at it, it's, it was just so obvious. Um, I actually, one of the things I did, I went back at uh, Bob Osgood, who, who was on our uh, intro uh, episode, our, our 2022 season preview. And he was like, Hey, we should, we should listen to that episode again and see what we got right and what we got wrong and see what we predicted for this team. And I went back and I listened to our, our episode and we predicted like all of the problems with this team. And in fact, like I had a whole segment about how I doubted Bobby Dahlbeck's validity as a hitter. Um, and actually, Bob was more optimistic about uh, Bobby Dahlbeck. But, you know, nonetheless, we predicted a lot of these problems. And if we predicted them, it's crazy. You know, the other thing I was looking at was like Kyle Schwarber. Over the last 162 games uh, that this guy's played, he's got 50 plus home runs. Why didn't Bloom think that that was a good idea 
to to run him back at first base or, you know, have him as the DH for the future, even if it's an awkward roster fit for this season. We knew the guy could play in this market. He killed it in this market. Why not re-sign that guy? I don't understand why he wasn't more aggressive there. Neither do I. I don't know. Or, well, I have a guess. And I bet you're not going to like it. Is it a Vax thing? No. What is it? Um, Bobby Dalbuck, second half, wasn't terrible in True. 2021. Um, had a crazy good August uh, and had a pretty good September as well. Hit 270 with 15 homers over the last two months of the season. I think he was banking on that and then just basically passing the torch to Casas. However, the margin of error there was so goddamn wide. It was such a tiny, tiny narrow needle to thread to not have a backup plan and just kind of put all your hopes in that was real foolish. That's just not. But I think that's what they went with. It's just not how you build a roster, though. You know, it's just. It's so weird because we all looked at his numbers from the second half of the season. We're like, ah, that seems a little out of character. This all seems a little bit fishy. You know, none of, none of us looked at his numbers from the second half and we were like, yep, that's sustainable. Like, that's going to be Bobby. I listened to the tape. We didn't say that. So if, if we were thinking that, you know, the, the best rosters are always built with options. You know, other guys you can turn to in those situations. We were begging for a platoon partner, a legitimate platoon partner uh, for Bobby Dahlbeck. So... I don't know, man. I'm clearly podcasting angry. This is what watching July baseball for the Red Sox <laughs> has done to me, Keaton. I've turned into this just monster uh, who is just going to uh, rip apart everything that, that Bloom has done. But it's just crazy that all these things were just just out there. And re- remember all the people that were just so deluded by the the idea that, like, Oh man, Franchi is totally different dude. Like when he came up and he he hit a couple balls hard and everybody was like, "Oh, dude, Franchi, he's like he's the guy now." And I was like, "Nah. I don't know. He's still Franchi." And now what's he doing? I mean, this is just Oh. Drive me crazy, man. <laughs> Yeah, so a little bit more on Talbuck too. Uh, 344 OBP, 343 ISO, hammering the ball all over the place. Uh, 150 WRC plus over the second half. What was this Babbitt? That's what he was banking on. Uh, 323. Well, that's not bad. That's not bad. No. Uh, that's I, I that's thought it what he was banking on. That's He thought he could get that. Yeah. Well, you didn't. You didn't, Bloom. You didn't get no. that. Uh, well, I'll move on from this angry rant to a, a less angry thing. Uh, Brian Bayo, uh made his, his third start here with the Red Sox, pitched against Toronto. 
uh, was not particularly sharp in that one either. Uh, I believe he gave up five earned runs. I'm not looking at the box score right now, but he did from memory, uh, five earned runs, uh, you know, just a guy who still has to work on some things. It's, it's command in the zone for him. It's making sure that his change up is, is in the zone and, and able to, you know, get guys to chase. Um, sometimes that can be a non-competitive pitch for him. Just a guy who I think in an ideal situation wouldn't have been up until August at the earliest and certainly wouldn't have been counted on for beginnings as a starter. Yeah. Yeah, I'll tell you what, though. All five came in the first inning, and there was some weird stuff. Ball hitting third base. Um, so it kind of – I feel like that made the line look a little bit worse. But for him to come back – after that, allowing five runs in the first uh, and be able to throw four shutout innings following that. I like that. That's that's To me, that shows me he's got a good head on his shoulders and can, can, can bounce back from a real tough inning. Uh, and I think that's a good thing to see, especially in a starting pitcher. He's got some confidence in him. I like to see that. Uh, and that's been consistent over all three of his starts. He's had a really rough inning, but be, been able to come back and throw one, two, four real solid innings after a rough outing. Mm -hmm. And I think that shows a lot of poise to be able to come back after a real tough inning and be able to, to throw another solid, you know, inning multiple innings after that. Uh, So I, while obviously the line doesn't look great, I still think there's some positive things to take away from these first three starts so far. I agree with that. And, and to use a, a main, main term, kids got moxie Keaton. (laughs) <laughs> God, that stuff is nasty. It is it's gross. Uh, my uh, my sibling though does does really like Moxie. Oddly enough, um, and Ted Williams used to uh, to push Moxie. Did you know that? I did. I had a a metal one of those uh, old timey like metal signs. Ted yep. Williams Moxie sign. I, that's got to be worth like hundreds of dollars. That's like a hell of a collectible. I got to find that. <laughs> they still sell those actually you can go up to like uh the little shops in in portland maine or i'm sure any number of places in maine and they still do uh sell uh, probably not the original you probably have an old one but uh they have uh new ones that they make of ted williams yeah i'm fairly certain my grandmother gave it to me so i'm pretty sure it's an old one it's one of those ones that like an antique picker would like haggle over with me for like five dollars knowing that it was worth thousands of dollars and (laughs) screw me over i I really gotta find that it's probably like my inheritance right there (laughs) i'm glad we got off on that tangent and and, uh you know on a a positive note though like you i'm not down on bayo i think that he's just been thrown into like okay you're gonna uh a, a guy who struggles with lefties, you're gonna let him face Tampa who can stack like eight or nine lefties or whatever in yeah. the lineup twice and then face Toronto. Like he hasn't had an easy go. It's not like this guy came up and uh got to face Oakland a couple times. So um still confident with him moving into next year. Although uh moving on to the next guy, Nathan Evaldi, uh, this guy doesn't look healthy at all to me since he's come back and especially against Toronto giving up nine runs. It's just non-competitive baseball from Nathan Eovaldi, a guy who when he's on his stuff is really good. It's, it's not just Velo though. It's, it's that great command that we've come to see 
from Nathan Eovaldi and really having a feel for a whole bunch of different pitches. Uh, this could be a problem, right? And and the problem is not like, oh, the Red Sox are going out there trying to win baseball games. Nathan Eovaldi is also auditioning for other teams right now, and this might impact what they can get for him at the trade deadline. <laughs> this is funny because it's going to sound like I'm making excuses for every single person you're bringing up here, but <laughs> I'm going to do it again. Okay, good. I like it's kind of weird side. for this is kind of weird for Evaldi though because like, he came back from the um, the IL, had one start before the All Star break, and then got a ton of time off, which is kind of awkward. But then also all of those runs weren't necessarily charged to him because four of them were inherited runners allowed off of that stupid botched uh, inside the park grand slam because technically Duran is in charge with an error and those are all earned. So it makes the line look way worse than it is and should have been an out and four of those runs should have counted and that's kind of real janky. I also think it's weird when you're working your way back from an injury to be consistently pitching, building up your strength, building up your pitch count, get a start at the major league level, and then take a big break, stopping all of that progress, and then go out there and try and pitch again at the major league level against Toronto, a really strong lineup. That's weird. That's kind of funky, especially for pitchers who are so routine-oriented and... one like Evaldi, who was just trying to build himself back up. That's kind of a weird situation. I, don't, I guess I don't... I obviously expected better because just Cause naturally Nate. from Evaldi, right. Yeah. I kind of expected better. But thinking about it like that, I kind of... No, I'm not trying to make an excuse for it, but it is an awkward situation. And then the, just Duran's play, not being charged in error. Like, <laughs> those last four probably shouldn't have been charged to him. I actually think that's very valid. Um, I think I think that's that was those were important excuses to make, Keaton. So I'm glad you did make them um, because I think I was getting a little too wrapped up in the numbers and contextually. I think you named a lot of things that are really important for him as a human being, like we were talking about at the top of the show. So yeah, I think that's that's legitimate and. You know, Nathan Eovaldi is one of these guys that over the last few years, we've really talked about how he's been able to figure out how his body works and how his pitches work. And, you know, I I remember even talking about when he was coming off Tommy John surgery, you know, him, him figuring out that like certain pitches that he thought were actually worse on his elbow were actually easier on his elbow because of the way that he throws mechanically and things like that. So the guy knows his body threw over 200 innings last year. Anybody who trades for him knows what type of impact he can give in the postseason. So honestly, I still expect a return for someone like Nathan Yabaldi to be pretty significant considering what he can do for, for a team down the stretch. Yeah. So hopefully he gets a, you know, a couple of good starts back here under his belt and uh, puts on a show. Yeah, definitely. All right. I want to talk on the pitching side. Uh, Keaton, I want to give you a guess as to who is leading the team in innings pitched in July. Oh, in July? In July, the month of July. These uh, 20 games that we've talked about here, who's the innings pitched leader? Ryan Brazier. 
<laughs> no, that would be really bad for us if that were true. Uh, well, it'd be even worse for us, I suppose. Things are already really bad. It is Cutter Crawford with 22 and a third innings pitched during July. Over that time, Cutter Crawford has pitched to a 2.82 ERA. He's been worth 0.7 war during that time, uh, striking out over nine uh, per uh, over over nine guys per nine, uh, and, and walking less than two per nine. Good for a 2.10 FIP. Uh, so he's been excellent. And, you know, it's just interesting to see, and I heard Mike Monaco talking about this on the broadcast as well with um, with Maz uh, when he was pitching a couple of days ago. And they were specifically talking about Cutter's Cutter, which, you know, sounds kind of funny to talk about. But uh, they were saying that they thought that it was the best pitch out of all of the young guys that are on this team. And that's kind of saying something because, you know, Winkowski has got that very good slider and Bayo's got a great change up. And, you know, there, there's a lot of stuff here. But Cutter Crawford has has really come out here and and showed a lot of poise and showed the ability to take the ball and also really bounce back from having some early season struggles. So, I mean, talk about what you've seen from Crawford here, Keaton, and and what you think his role could be moving forward with this team. Yeah. Um, I mean, right now he's the most reliable pitcher here in the rotation, um, which, you know, for the next, I don't know, couple weeks is going to be pretty important uh, with you know, trade deadline looming and getting until you get guys back um, from injuries and into the rotation is going to be pretty important. Um, but also just for his long-term plans, um, he's a guy that we haven't really talked about what his role could be. I think we've talked about him <laughs> – as, as like a trade option as like, I think you've made a point that he'd make a great Oakland athletic. Yeah, I have. <laughs> uh, and that's pretty much all we've talked about. But if he's here, uh, we haven't really talked about what his role would be with the Red Sox. And we've really talked about um, like who that, who would be that fifth starter. We've really focused on um, like Connor Seabold um, and um, Winkowski. Yeah, I was going to say, who's, who's the hell is the other guy? <laughs> Winkowski. Yeah. But we hadn't really entertained the thought of Carter Crawford at all. Um, he's certainly worked his way into that conversation and probably has, I mean, this stretch that he's on right now uh, is the most impressive stretch of probably all three of those guys. Um, you know, Winkowski had his nice little run there, but the the stretch that Carter Crawford's on right now, especially with the strikeouts, um has been more impressive and um, whether or not that's sustainable obviously is still left to see. Uh, But the improvements that he's made have been really impressive. Um, And right now he's the only starter that when they go out there, I'm like, I feel pretty good that we have a good shot at a quality start here. Um, And that's scary because it shouldn't be only Carter Crawford that I feel that way about. Um, but that's just kind of the, the state of where the roster is at. But if everything else can kind of self-correct and you have Carter Crawford uh, being this kind of starter, um, that that's a pretty solid weapon going forward. And, and whatever that role is, whether he ends up being that fifth starter or maybe he ends up being 
your long reliever um, piggybacker spot starter guy. Um, I think I would feel better about him being that guy in the bullpen because of the strikeouts over Winkowski and Siebold. Um, so I think he would fit that role better, of course. Um, wouldn't work out in series versus uh, Toronto, but, you know, that's that may be a factor. Um, but I think that could be a role, and I think it because of the strikeouts, I could play up in the bullpen. So I, I think it makes it much more interesting of a conversation with him being successful uh, because that makes him much more of a weapon. So let's just see if it's sustainable. Mm-hmm. And then if it is, then we have a nice fun little conversation we can have about how that slots in for 2023. Yeah. I mean, he's got an interesting pitch mix, you know, the, the mid nineties fastball, the, the really good cutter. It's like 89, 90 miles an hour. Um, throws a curveball, slider change up. But the thing that still has me being a little reticent about what he's doing right now and, and a little hesitant to, to say like, all right, you know, this is the next guy uh, who can, who can come in and be a, a solid starter for us is, is the fly ball rate. For him, it's it's forty eight point eight percent in the major leagues over his career, forty eight point two percent this year in twenty twenty two, and over the stretch of time that I just mentioned um, with him, one of the things that has happened to him is he's had this incredibly low uh, home run to fly ball rate in July of just three point seven percent, and that's usually something that really impacts Cutter is is the long ball. You know, we when we saw him struggle. Early in the year, out of the bullpen, we saw Cutter Crawford struggle giving up home runs. And if you're somebody that gives up that many fly balls in Fenway Park, you know that's usually not a great recipe uh, for long-term success. So he's got to figure out a way to to get that ground ball rate up, or at least not allow so many fly balls. I mean, well, I guess I mean you need more ground balls if you're you don't want to allow line drives either because the. Those aren't going to be good for anybody, but uh, yeah, it's it's still like he's still figuring it out, and I think that's a guy who I'm still unsure about. Yeah, I think I'm there too, but um, feel good about what he's doing. Still unsure if it's sustainable, but if it is, then it makes for a fun, I won't say problem to have, but a, a fun conversation to have about roster construction for 2023. <clears throat> Yeah, definitely. Definitely. All right, Yolmer Sanchez. I want to talk Yolmer for just a second here. Um, you know, we've we've only seen Yolmer Sanchez for a little bit of time since he's come up here. But uh, one of the things that I've liked about him is just he's given some quality at bats. Uh, it's been pretty good to see him uh, come up and swing the bat. And uh, I don't know. I'm kind of interested in him from a... Uh, the standpoint of the fact that Yomer has won a gold glove before. He seems to be a little bit of a contact oriented guy. He hit down in triple um, I don't know. What have been your thoughts about Yomer? I wasn't expecting anything and I've been a little bit positively uh, surprised by his little stint. Yeah. I mean, he had some, some neat seasons with the White Sox. Um, he's one of those guys where it doesn't really have anything that's like super exciting, but it's just kind of like a neat infielder there. Yeah. And that's, I think, 
then he had some real struggle seasons there and uh really hasn't really done much since like 2018 um but is walking a crap ton right now um in the small sample which i think just having somebody that i mean you pointed out that he's having really good at bats just having somebody in the lineup that can just make a pitcher work and have a really good at bat is so refreshing even if it is like maybe just fleeting and it's just like a little hot streak for a few weeks, whatever. Just having somebody that's able to do that is just, it's nice. It's nice to see. Yeah. It's just nice to be able to watch somebody, uh, field effectively. That too. Well too. So it's nice to see that when, when story goes on the, uh, IL, you're not seeing a huge drop off at defense, uh, at second base. So yeah, that's, that's been solid. Um, Man, I'm really grasping at straws for positives during this stretch when I'm talking about Yolmer Sanchez, but here we are. Yeah. All right. Well, so well, my yeah. my excitement was that there was a time where the White Sox had Yolmer Sanchez and Yolbert Sanchez, and I was I really wanted them to be on the White Sox at the same time. <laughs> That's pretty good. Is uh is is Yolmer from Cuba? Um he uh I guess that's not important. I don't know why I, I can't find this. No idea. Yeah, I don't know. I just figured because uh the White Sox famously have like the most Cuban players. In the league, usually they've got just a great tradition of Cuban ball players over there. So Yolbert is Yol. Yeah, yeah, that's okay. Okay, okay. Thought one of those two was. All right, moving on uh, from this, I want to talk blame pie here. <laughs> so uh, the idea behind this little segment of blame pie is to divide one hundred percent of the blame in whatever percentages. Uh, we feel it should go to. And the four buckets in which we're going to dump the blame into are Bloom, Alex Cora, the players, and ownership. So let's first talk about Mr. Bloom, who's been a, a very, uh, you know, important guy to talk about uh, during this stretch. And we've been yelling at him all year. But how much of the blame pie would you give Bloom? Well, see, I feel like he deserves a lot just based off of the position that he occupies alone. Mm-hmm. I don't necessarily mean think that means um, that it's a it's a major negative, and I think we'll get more into the context of that. But um, I would say. It's interesting that you say 55% because the number I had written down, and uh, I didn't share this number with you beforehand, but I wrote down 60% of the blame. Uh, So we are right around the same area uh, when it comes to Heim Bloom. Certainly, you know, we were both earmarking this past offseason to be the year that, you know, the team starts to spend. And also we expected some extensions to get done. 
uh, with Xander endeavors and all that stuff hasn't come to pass. So, you know, certainly a large part of the bloom there. Uh, blame. Uh, I just called it the bloom. <laughs> the blame for bloom. Good work. Um, all right. Um, so we're we're pretty much in agreement there. What about Alex Cora? Uh, I have him at 5% of the blame. <laughs> so I I had him I just changed it from 5% to 10%. Okay, interesting. <laughs> so why did you move from 5 to 10 with Alex Cora? What's your thought process there? Where so do you I think had, he's failed at? I had the players at 10% and Cora at 5 and then I just flipped it last last second. I just flipped it to players 5, Cora 10. Uh, and I I figure the players, it's really just all of these stupid goddamn mental mistakes and just the errors, all of the stupid errors piling up. I don't think the players deserve a lot of the blame. So they're at least tiny, tiniest cut of the pie, 5%. Core is at 10%, the second tiniest cut of the pie because, you know, he's only out there with the players that he's given from Bloom and ownership. Um, however, he does make some pretty questionable moves with the bullpen a lot. That is pretty frustrating. Burns guys out by the time we get to the playoffs. Um, or doesn't know what the hell's going on with the closer role. Doesn't know how they're utilizing Whitlock. I don't know if that's his decision or if it's him in bloom or what the hell's going on. Um, so I gave him 10%. That's fair. I, I, I am, you know, I, I agree with you. There's been some moves that have been a little bit questionable in game. Um, but over the course of 162, I mean, your manager, uh, however good they are, is going to make some questionable moves. I think overall, he's pretty good at communicating with the players. I do think that he might struggle a little bit um, with the youngest guys on the team uh, and some of the struggling guys. Like, I don't know. It tells me something that Dahlbeck and Cordero haven't been able to, like, really put together any any stretches, and, and JBJ hasn't. And maybe, maybe they're just bad baseball players, and maybe that's just – all it is, but you know, I I kind of want him to just get a little bit more out of these guys, and I don't think he handled the Duran situation well. So I don't know. I don't know what a clubhouse is like these days, and I think that when Cora was playing, the players were for better or for worse. Like they were. I mean, we've heard Tim Wakefield stories about how guys were to each other in that clubhouse, especially the veterans, and it's like. Good. I'm glad that crap's not happening anymore. But I'm not sure what level of accountability is there from the leaders on the team like Xander and how they treat the young guys and whether, you know, they are hard enough on the young guys. I, I think there has to be some of that element there. And if that's not going to happen from the players, if that's not the dynamic, then I think Cora needs to step in and be a little bit more uh, of a disciplinarian with some guys because, you know, different guys respond to different approaches. If you remember when Eduardo was here, I mean, he was a guy that 
Cora came down hard on all the time. And that seemed to really be the thing that got the best performance out of Eduardo. Um, but some guys uh, just need a kick in the ass. So I don't know. All that for 5%? All that for 5%. Yeah, I don't know. <laughs> I have a lot to say tonight, Keaton. Yeah, you do. It's It's been pent up. So then what did you give the players? I gave the players 10%. Um, I, <laughs> so it's funny. that I, We had the exact same, and then I flipped. <laughs> yeah, I mean, with the players here, the guys who are supposed to perform are performing, largely. Um, and then it's all the injuries. You know, I don't know how much you can dress this thing up. It's a poorly constructed roster. I'd love to see Xander hit for more power. I'd love to see Verdugo be more consistent on both sides of the ball. But, like, how can you complain about what J.D. or Vasquez or Devers or any of these guys, what they're doing out there? And, like, you can't really complain about JBJ either because guess what? He's better than he was last year when he was the worst player in baseball. He also is what he is. Like, this is what we expected him to be, and he's what we expected. Yeah. So just give the players that extra 5% just because you feel like there should be more accountability amongst the players? Yeah, I think so. And and also, like, you know, you're, you're, you guys are the ones out there. Have a little bit of pride, you know? Just that, that grit factor that I want to see. I want to see guys really care. Um, yeah. And, you know, Duran clearly didn't care or show that he cared. Yeah. True. Um, you have anything else on the players or should we move on to ownership? No, that was it. Okay. Ownership. Uh, I gave him 25%. What'd you give him? 40. Whoa. Okay. 40% for ownership. You have a bigger piece for the ownership. Why don't you go off on, uh, John Henry? Yeah. Um, time and time again, they are over, uh, reactive to, uh, public opinion and, um, Time and time again, they let it affect their direction of the team. Uh, and I think that's that's starting to happen here. And I think they don't have a direction for the team or they're getting frustrated with the direction of the team. And that started to happen with um, them letting Dombrowski go in the middle of the season or before the end of the season. Not necessarily in the middle, but before the season was completed. Um and or I mean, it really kind of went back to the Chris Sale extension. Um, right after they won the World Series, they immediately wanted to start shedding salary, uh, built up on that the good faith of winning the World Series. They immediately wanted to start taking the team in another direction, and Dabrowski was like, "Hey, what I would like to do is win another. What's better than one World Series? A whole bunch more." Uh, and so. They were like, well, we understand the optics of firing a GM immediately after uh, winning a World Series is bad, so we'll try and wait it out even though we really don't want you to do that, which is really stupid because if they, they're the ones signing off on all the money. If they don't want to give Chris Sale a whole bunch of money, then why are they signing off on it? Why are they literally telling Dombrowski, we don't want to do this, but we're going to let you do it? Right. And then be pissed at him and fire him and blame him like four months later. Don't understand it. And they bring in Bloom and basically be like, hey, we'll hire you, but you've got to immediately trade Mookie. Bring him in, 
who does that, basically dictate. Uh, I thought that was going to be it. And I'm thinking maybe that's not the way that the last three years has gone. Um, I'm not entirely sure. I thought because they, they've they've tended to kind of like overcorrect with every change. Um, and they were really obviously hands off with Dombrowski. And so I guess I should have expected like they were obviously super hands on with Charrington. Right. And they brought in Dombrowski super hands off bringing in Bloom. I thought they had learned their lesson and I thought they were going to chill out, but it seems like maybe they're overcorrecting again and they're like super hands-on with Bloom and Bloom is starting to be like, I think we're going to get into this with the next piece in the quote, kind of like, hey guys, maybe don't do this and be dicks What and just let me run the team like you hired me to do. Uh, and there's maybe some like, frustration building up which i would certainly would not blame him for um but i just it feels like they have a goddamn lack of direction and just letting people like like agree on a direction and then fucking run with it for whatever agreed upon period of time because particularly in baseball you can't just be like hey let's do this for this year and then a year goes by and then change your mind and be like okay now we want to pivot to do this this yeah. isn't how baseball works. Like you can't, like it's turning an oil tanker. It's not. You can't do it just immediately. Yeah, you don't want to get stuck in the Suez Canal. We've seen this before. Exactly. Yeah. So, I think I had a misunderstanding of what ownership was actually going to let Bloom do, and I, I frustrated that maybe I was duped again. Because I feel like I'm always the one who's the most pessimistic about ownership in particular. Mm-hmm. And I let them get me again. <laughs> and I'm really fucking pissed off about it. <laughs> and I just... I gave Bloom the majority of this blame pie just based on the position that he's in. And I kind of felt bad about it. Because I don't agree with it. Because I feel like it's ownership again. That's interesting. I... I uh... So... I don't find ownership to be quite as nefarious as you do. I, I do have a lot of problems with ownership. And I think that ownership has been absentee more than I would like it to. It feels very much like the Red Sox being sort of the most mature asset here in the Fenway Sports Group um, portfolio is not the prime. It's not the new toy, you know. The, the Red Sox are, are a moneymaker. They're very stable. You know, they're focused on Liverpool. They're focused on the Penguins that they just bought. Maybe Fenway Roush Racing. I don't know what they're focused on. But it doesn't feel like they're really dialed in the same way that they were in the early years of acquiring this thing. But I think my biggest problem with John Henry is the lack of um, ownership over the the legacy players here so we we just saw david ortiz go into the hall of fame we're going to touch on that a little bit later in the show but when you think about guys who are on this team who could eventually you know maybe go into the hall of fame or you know if not you know maybe have their number retired uh at, at fenway and and have that number up there on the the right field porch you know, Xander Bogarts and Devers are two guys that could do that. Xander's already the all-time leader in games played for this team at shortstop. 
at some point there are certain deals with players that transcend whatever the hell you're trying to do on the field. And those legacy players, those situations need to be handled differently and they need to be handled if if it's going to be contentious between, you know, Bloom and uh, Boris, like sorry, that d- discussion needs to not be had with Bloom then. Maybe you just sit down Boris and John Henry and figure this out because it's something that needs to get figured out because the legacy of this thing is more important than just whatever the hell is going on on the field. And I feel like that is where they've really struggled. And you you mentioned the sale thing. Like, you're right. If they didn't agree with the sale contract, why sign off on it? And, you know, if you don't agree, if you're John Henry and you're like, wow, I think it's a really horrible idea if we don't figure out how to get Xander and Devers to be part of this team long term. Like, you're the owner, man. Go down there and negotiate and go over Heim's head for these two situations. That's okay. You've earned that as an owner because you own the freaking team. So I just realized in my haste to actually write out the percentages, I went 110%. (laughs) You're always going all the way, Keaton. Extra effort from you. Yeah. So I'm going to scale Bloom back 10%. Still has a majority of the pie, but now he's at 45. (laughs) That's fair. That's fair. I did think your percentages <laughs> sounded a little bit high, but I wasn't yeah. ready to do the math on the spot. Well, that's what I was just thinking. I was like, we were pretty close everywhere else. Why are we so far off on ownership? And then I was like, oh, wait, no, my <laughs> math is wrong. <laughs> uh, that's funny. Oops. Or All they're right. just, you know, the Red Sox are just, you know, giving 110%, you know. All the time. <laughs> yeah. All right, so uh, the quote that you teased, Keaton, Brian Barrett, uh, he works for WEI, covers the Red Sox there. He had a tweet yesterday that kind of was eye-opening to me, uh, and he said, quote, it's bloody, really bloody, and that was the response from Eduardo Perez, who covers MLB, uh, when he got asked, uh, when when it asked uh, higher-ups with the Sox about what's going on. So, first of all, like, what do you take away from this tweet and how concerning is this to you? Because Eduardo Perez seems like a pretty reliable source here. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's a little concerning. Uh, and to me, it reads as there's a disagreement about the direction of the club. And it feels like Dombo all over again. And it's... I mean, maybe it's the reverse. Then Maybe I have it wrong. Maybe it's ownership. I mean... Um, I think you you tweeted, it was either you or Brian pointed out that, um, you know, they, John Henry is very aware of public opinion and when things start to slide, definitely overcorrects and he'll spend mm-hmm. a bunch of money. Um, so it may be that John Henry's like, hey, Bloom, you really got to lock these guys up. And he's like, no, I don't want to. And that's the frustration. I'm hoping it's the other way around. Um, that Bloom wants to spend the money and ownership doesn't want to. Because I would really hate to be on the side of John Henry for once. It's like <laughs> full on the onion. Worst guy, you know, just made a great point meme. Really don't want to want to feel that way. So, yeah. So I'm hoping that's not the case. But then at the same time, like... I guess it would kind of make me feel better to know that the Red Sox were actually willing to spend that money. And then, and so I, I don't, 
I don't know. It's frustrating, but that's it reads to me like there is a fundamental disagreement between those in charge about what direction the Red Sox need to go. Uh, that's been boiling for I assume some time. Um, if it's bloody, then that means you know this isn't something that just popped out of nowhere, um, which I guess would make sense. Um, you know, it's maybe that is why it took Bloom so long to make a signing this offseason. You know, we it story was basically the last guy left when he got signed. Um, it worked out for me because this was the guy that when we were talking about targets, this was the guy I wanted them to go get. So I was pretty pumped. Um, but there was a ton of other guys that we really wanted that we thought would be a lot better fits, like say Suzuki, get that outfielder, make a ton of sense. Rizzo, first base, or anybody at first base, literally anybody else at first base, um, or a closer, and none of that that spending happened. Was it a case of where ownership wanted him to spend and Bloom didn't, and now we're kind of like coupled with the the tumble that the Red Sox just had uh, and the frustrations of the fans and, you know, John Henry's awareness of public perception is that stuff bubbling up and, um, you know, butting heads about the direction and the, you know, the action plan of where the Red Sox want to go. That's kind of how it feels to me. Obviously, I don't know if that is the case or who's on what side, what the disagreement actually is, what direction who wants to go and who's stopping whoever from getting there. But just in general, that's the vibe that I get. There's disagreement in the direction, um, in the higher ups. And that's kind of just trickling down, uh, which yeah, that frustrates me, especially because we have some major decisions to make and not a lot of time to make it. It yeah, makes we... me less confident that Bogarts is going to be here. It makes me less confident. They'll get the extension done for Devers. doesn't make me feel great. We've got about a week to figure out what feels like the next five years of direction uh, with this team. Um, But, you know, looking at this tweet, I thought about it even maybe on a more granular level than Haim and just um, ownership. And I thought about this maybe with like the existing infrastructure that was already there when Haim got here. I mean, there's so many big personalities in the front office, um, or I shouldn't say personalities, but big figures with a lot of institutional knowledge that have been here for a long time. You know, Raquel Ferreira, uh, Brian O'Halloran, Sam Kennedy, Eddie Romero. Like these are all really smart baseball people with winning in their past and who have had a lot of success uh, doing things the way that the Red Sox have traditionally done them. And then you have Bloom coming in thinking about things entirely differently with this new, uh, you know, thought process that he's learned from the Rays. And there's a lot of positives that we can take away from that. And I think that was the idea uh, from bringing him on. But I also think that they could look at situations like Xander and Endeavors uh, very differently, uh, th- those those two groups of people. And uh, I wonder if there is some struggle going on there because it does feel like the Red Sox for, for an organization um, – of their size and stature kind of have a lot of cooks in the kitchen when it comes to uh, people who have a say in running the team. And I think that can be really good, but it can also be really bad. And you know, when Dombrowski was here, like it was clear who was steering the ship. It was Dombo. 
And what he he straight up called yeah. his called his shot every time he came out. He's like, "We need a pitcher. I'm signing Price. You know, we, we need a closer. I'm gonna go trade for Kimbrel." Like he just told us what he was gonna do, and that was really cool. And everybody seemed to be on the same page. Um, but now I'm not so sure everybody's on the same page. So I am worried yeah. about it. Yep. All right. Uh, let's get, we're running a little bit long here, so I want to skip ahead to, uh, David Ortiz. Um, David Ortiz just made his speech at his hall of fame induction. Uh, it was a great honor for him. Um, you know, Keaton, I wanted to ask you two questions, uh, when it comes to David Ortiz, uh, where does he rank in your pantheon of favorite Boston athletes of all time? And, uh, do you think he is the most important Red Sox player of all time? Number two, yes. Uh, number one, I think he's number two. Behind Who's your one? Tom Brady. Okay. He's my three. Um, I have it. Pedro is my one. Brady is my two. And Ortiz is my three. But that's just because I'm like, a, a, I love pitching. I think it's yeah. just the greatest. Pitching's the bee's knees. But I, I thought it was a great honor for him. Um, one of the other things, in, in when I did my big history series uh, at Over the Monster, you know, kind of talking about the greatest players in franchise history, wrote a whole ton of words on that. I did call Ortiz the most important player of all time. And I, it's something I vehemently think um, – not only because of the relationship that Ortiz had with winning here in Boston and breaking that curse, and obviously it's winning was not something that Ted Williams was able to do uh, while he was here, but also the relationship with the city. Uh, David Ortiz and uh, Teddy Ballgame could not have had much more different relationships <laughs> with the city and the fans. Um, True. And w- when you think of Boston, you think of David Ortiz and that tight relationship that he had, and when you think of... Ted Williams, you think of the home run that he hit in his last at bat here where he refused to even come out for a curtain call or, or tip his cap. So uh, very, very different. There's no question that Williams is the better baseball player, uh, but Ortiz is the better Red Sox to me. So great yeah. honor for him. What's your favorite Ortiz moment? Uh, the uh, Game 5, 2004 uh, ALCS hit off of Esteban Loiza, uh, the, the single uh, to win that game, just because uh, game four, it felt like, okay, this dude just had a moment, and it was a huge moment. But then to think that someone could have a second moment the next day was, it was like, okay, this guy's a superhuman. You know, I just, at that point, he was just, a god, a mythic figure to me. How about yeah. you? Yeah, I mean, it's pretty hard to narrow it down, and that's good. But I just always come back to the Grand Slam against Detroit. Yeah, and that's, a great one. and um, Dave O'Brien's call on that one is just so iconic too. And putting Tory Hunter over the wall and the cop and yeah, all of it. It's just classic. I think that was uh, Officer Steve Horton, if I remember correctly. Uh, I actually met him outside of the, the the game and got a picture with my brother and I 
and him with all our hands up uh, <laughs> doing the same thing. So nice, uh, super nice guy as well. So yeah, that that's that's probably the biggest the image. Like when you think of Ortiz, you think of that image. Yeah, um, yeah, awesome stuff for him. All right, so just uh, quickly a couple things before we get to our listener questions. Rich Hill is going to start a rehab assignment, it seems like, on Wednesday. And Kike is starting swinging on Friday. Both of those things were reported by Alex Spear. Uh, so they're probably true, um, as long as things go well. And, uh, you know, the Kike, he is on the 60-day IL, so he's not going to be eligible to come back until sometime in August. So a little caveat there. All right, first one here. Comes from Patio D, and he says, "I know we are beset by injuries, but shouldn't Bloom take some heat for the starting pitching situation? He signed Michael Walker, James Paxton, and Rich Hill, and already had Sale and Evaldi's injuries happen. But with these guys, you had to know you weren't getting Ryan Nolan Ryan esque workhorses. Absolutely, Patio D." Um, you know, if, if, if you go back and listen to that intro show I was talking about, Keaton, we all made innings predictions for for these guys because it's such a it's such a concern with all of these guys. So, you know, I, I think the philosophy here was probably just numbers like you have enough of these guys that kind of uh, miss time so much that, yeah, you'll eventually be able to fill it. But I think Patio D's got a good point here. I, I think to an extent, I mean, Paxton, he signed knowing he was hurt. Right. And that we weren't going to get much there. Um, Walker has been pretty consistent with like 120 innings. I mean, that's not awful. If you can get like 150 innings out of guys, it's pretty consistent. So 120 is not all that far off. Plus, um, adding um, Rich Hill... And the guys that they had in the upper minors, I think they thought they'd be able to piece it together. I don't think they thought literally all of their starters would go down at once. And plus, um, you thought you'd have sale for the whole season. You didn't think you'd have a cracked rib and then a broken pinky. Yeah. That piece was a little bit kind of unforeseen. So I think to an extent, you're right. When you fill um, a one through five, essentially, and or really like one through eight, with guys who have injury histories, you can expect them to miss time. I thought they 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 probably thought they could patch it together, and when one guy went down, another guy could step in. And I don't think they thought all eight would go down at once. That yeah, that part is slightly rare, <laughs> especially the upper minors guys too having having yeah. the trouble like Winkowski hitting the COVID IL and Seabold with the elbow and you know things like that. Uh, the the one here that I really don't blame him for is Chris Sale. You know, we yeah. we all thought Chris Sale was going to kind of hit the ground running this year, uh, a, a full year removed uh, from, you know, sort of coming back from this, this surgery. Um, and I think they did believe that Eovaldi has figured something out with his body like we were talking about before and throwing over 200 innings. But I'm totally with Patio D on Waka, Paxton Hill. Uh, those guys, and I think you, you ought to have probably erred on on the side of caution a little bit more, but I, I think your point is well taken, Keaton, as well. So it's an interesting one. Uh, House of Kuzu has our next two questions. He says, are you mentally prepared to see Xander in another uniform next week? No, I am not. No. Uh, and I thought that your, your gift that you uh, tweeted back to him was appropriate. <laughs> yeah. 
uh, it was why you gotta be what was it? Why you gotta say that, man? Or be <laughs> why that you gotta way? be that way? Yeah, uh, and it, yeah, yeah, good one. Um, especially if you watched Sons of Anarchy. Um, and he has a, another one. He says, "Would you trade JD for Blake Snell? He isn't having a good year, and it seems like the Padres need the DH slash outfield. They have a lot of rotation options. Would you make that swap?" Jake, I think I'm going to surprise you. Okay. And I don't think I'm going to surprise you. I love it. <laughs> yeah, you've always been the big Blake Snell guy. You uh, you owe me a bottle of gin because of Blake Snell. I sure do. <laughs> I sure do. Um, he's got a goofy line this year, but the, the tertiary stats actually look kind of nice. I mean, the, the walks are weird. Um. But the the XERA, the FIP, the XFIP look nice. He's the home run per fly ball rate looks real nice. Keeping the ball in the yard, strikeouts look real nice. It is a goofy line, um, but I would make that swap because I think, especially um, the Red Sox like guys with good sliders, uh, and they tend to kind of get the most out of those guys and bring out a little something extra. Seems like a match made in heaven to me. Well, we all know he can handle the ALEs too. Uh, That's right. So, yeah, I, I love the idea of this. I, I don't think that the Padres would do this um, just because pitching is so valuable. But uh, if they would, yeah, I'd definitely do it. I think you've got a lot of a lot of good points and ideas on that one. Uh, Snell's good. Mark Anderson has our next question. He says, uh, Boston or which other team on August 1st? Uh, it probably means August 2nd here, um, the trading deadline. But Xander, uh, do you think he'll be on Boston or uh, another team? I, I, I don't think I can bring myself to really believe he'll be somewhere else. Like I just don't think I can I can comprehend it right now. Yeah, I'm until it s- actually happens, I just don't. I can't believe it. I don't think he'll get traded. I think Xander's here. Uh, Vasquez, I think he's going to go to the Padres. Oh, interesting. Yeah. Do I actually have to pick a team, or can I just say other team? Uh, you can just say other team. Other team. Eovaldi, I think he's going to go to the Cardinals. That's an interesting fit. Oh, they did just lose a pitcher today. Mm-hmm. That makes sense. Um, I would agree. Other team. Waka. I think he's worth more to the Red Sox as an innings eater than he is to another team. So I think he stays. Yeah, I think he stays. I don't know what his trade value is i think yeah i'm not sure what this trade value is gonna be weird because he's been hurt he was really 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 good and then hurt and it's probably better for waka if he plays out this season and can prove that he's healthy and still good and then signs a big contract somewhere else i don't think people are gonna give up a lot especially because i don't think he'll be back by the trade deadline so I think that like no one's going to want to give up a lot questioning if what he did was sustainable and that he's 
currently injured. So Red Sox are going to be like, nah, that's cool. We'll just we'll stick with him. J.D. Martinez. Yeah, I think he's gone. I think he's gone too. Uh, and the landing spot I have for him is the San Francisco Giants who are in need of some punch. Interesting. What kind of punch? Uh, tropical. Well, that's uh, that's a big park. It is a big park. And he's not hitting homers. But he does have a good slugging percentage, and he's a professional hitter. He is. Well, that's why I asked what kind of punch. It's like just a lineup, like yeah. to, to the lineup, or like splash hits. I mean, I, I, mean, I think, a, I think they're so looking for a doubles hits, guy. Like a, like a ribby guy. You know, a, a doubles yeah. professional at bats in the postseason type type guy. Uh, yeah, that's and fair. I don't think it would cost a lot. That's the thing. And and yeah. uh when you when you see how the Giants traditionally do business, they traditionally target guys kinda like that. So Yeah. Thought it might work. We'll see. We'll see if I get any of these right. So market. Padres, cards, giants. All right. Baseball Matters has our next question. He says socks after the all star break. When will the hurting stop? August 2nd? Uh, yeah. I actually think it's August 3rd. August 3rd. We'll stop. Yeah, I was going to say, I mean, it's it won't if they do end up trading Bogarts. Yeah. <laughs> that will just hurt forever. I'll <laughs> need a pint glass of whiskey <laughs> to the face if that happens. Yeah. But yeah. then... Uh, yeah, it'll it'll uh, it'll you'll retch until the trade deadline, and then Xander's still here, and you'll feel better. Uh, but then the season will end, and he won't have an extension, and you'll retch again. So it'll be a temporary relief. Forecast says pain. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and our last question here comes from Maddie, and it says. Uh, with Boston quickly becoming sellers, what kind of return do you think Martinez and or Eovaldi would bring? Um, let's just give a range of prospect here for, for these guys. Um, what do you think, like, range of prospect do you think uh, they could get for a half season of J.D. Martinez? 20-plus uh, in the org. 20 plus in the org. Yeah. I think that's fair. I was going to say 15 plus, um, but I think 20 plus is probably just as good. Uh, Eovaldi, I think they could get a top 10 guy in a system for Eovaldi. Yeah, that's what I was, I was thinking, right around 10. Yeah. So, uh, it, and you might see a situation where they get multiple players for, for these guys as well. Uh, maybe some guys down in the system too you you can always uh get slightly higher ceiling guys if you're willing to look down in the low minors so we'll potentially see what they are able to do if they get anything but uh this has been a very long episode we do hope you enjoyed it and uh if you stuck around past the angry rantings of the uh first 45 minutes we did uh we did calm down a little bit so i'm proud of us keaton (laughs) 
<laughs> you know, it's uh, it's always therapeutic talking Red Sox with you, man. It is. It is. It's always a pleasure. Uh, make sure you go on, rate and review us, subscribe to the show. We do appreciate that. Uh, you'll get this show. You'll also get the Red Sox on Deck Prospect podcast and Keaton and Bailey's great show, The Precap, which previews and recaps uh, all of the series that the Red Sox do. Um, make sure you follow Keaton on Twitter at the Spoken Keats. Make sure you follow me at, at Dev Jake and follow the Over the Monster account at Over the Monster, which uh, Keaton is now doing. So that's it's been high quality lately. So thank you very much, Keaton. Um, and thank all of you for listening and we'll be with you again next week. 